If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar. The work of the artist and satirist William Hogarth is indelibly linked with the first half of the 18th century. He was prolific in his representations of society both high and low. And as the art historian Jacqueline Riding says, there is a Hogarth work for almost everything you would ever want to know about the period. But his own story is equally fascinating. And in today's episode, you'll be hearing more from Jacqueline, whose new biography of the artist charts his journey from humble beginnings to professional triumph. Putting the questions to her was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your new book, Hogarth, Life in Progress, uh, is published by Profile Books and is out in July. And it covers Hogarth's uh, life and work. And you write that Hogarth's vision, to a vast degree, still defines the 18th century. And for listeners who aren't all that familiar with Hogarth or would welcome a little refresher, can you uh, perhaps start by giving us uh, an introduction to his work and the time he was working? Yeah, so Hogarth was born in 1697 during the reign of William III, so one of the last Stuarts, uh, kings of England and Scotland and Ireland, um, and died during the reign of George III after, you know, in six, uh, 1764. So actually after the union of the crowns and parliaments of Scotland and England. So he he exists and and sort of um, observes and comments on through his art and and his writings and so on on a period of great change. I know there's always great change going on in British English history and so on, but uh, but it is it's a it's a, a seismic shift, you know, in in you know in in the period, and he's very much a commentator on it on on society and that those changes in society. Um, from the highest to the lowest. So he's famously somebody who's a great observer of all, you know, lifestyles, um, characters, as he would call them, from people he sees in the street to palaces and so on. He's a 
he's a, 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 an artist, an observer and an artist of great variety. Um, so I think if people know Hogarth, they'll tend to know him because of his social commentaries. So most famously would be Gin Lane, published in 1751, so towards the end of his, his life and career. Um, and they will know for the, the, the sort of gritty series engravings, uh, Rake's Progress, Harlot's Progress, Marriage a la Mode, and so on. I think that wouldn't distress Hogarth, but I think he would be a little bit annoyed that that's all he's famous for because he's also a very empathetic, sympathetic portrait painter. He really wanted to be the artist of high and what we would call low art. Uh, he didn't see that there was a conflict between something serious um, and something comedic. In fact, he saw didn't see comedy as an end in itself. It was a it, it had a purpose. Uh, more often than not, a moral purpose or a statement of fact, as he would see it, and so on. So he, I think he would be a little bit, well, he would be a little bit, he'd be very annoyed knowing Hogarth <laughs> if all he's known for is Gin Lane, because he is, he is, as I say, an artist of great variety. So not only will you know Gin Lane, but if you went to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, to Bart's, and go to the staircase there, you'll see these magnificent um, history paintings, as they call narrative paintings, from taken from the New Testament, the Good Samaritan and the Pool of Bethesda. You would then you could go to the Foundling Hospital, as it was then, the Foundling Museum now, and see the magnificent full-length portrait of Thomas Coram, the founder of the Foundling Hospital, which is a magnificent portrait and still stands as one of the great 18th century, if not British art, portraits um, of any time. Um, and, you know, so you could see the sheer scale of the variety in a relatively short walk around central London. You can, you'll meet Hogarth through his paintings and engravings even now. I think part of the problem is, of course, that it's certainly in the period, um, people didn't have the luxury of a catalogue resume that they could flick through <laughs> to see the sheer expanse and variety of his paintings, let alone his engravings and so on. Um, but we have that luxury now and but um, part of the purpose of the book is to stress again, because that reputation still exists as the as the, the comic, the serious comic uh, artist uh, observer. But to stress yet again that he is a man and, and an artist of great variety. Um, and so the book really attempts to not only do full justice to those magnificent and you know highly amusing but very serious, um, you know, moral observations through his engravings but also that you know the wonderful portraits as I say of children and adults and families and individuals and those history paintings too that are still with us. Yes I do think your book uh, reflects that scope wonderfully and I hope we can go into a little more detail in terms of the things you've already mentioned his, his philanthropy and and such. Um, I wanted to ask about this um, as you call it this high-low inspiration and how this perhaps um, informed his his nature, what you call his more chippy sort of nature, uh, and his relationship with maybe the more establishment artists of the time. Well, he's uh, well. He had a, a very uh, close and uh, almost, you know, father son relationship with one of the great late seventeenth, early eighteenth century artists, uh, establishment artists, and that was Sir James Thornhill. So uh, I think his 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 chippiness sort of comes from the, the fact that, as he sees it, there's no level playing field. Um, particularly when he's younger, when his poor father, who has various projects that go go awry, um, and eventually he ends up in the Fleet Prison when Hogarth was you know still 10 or 11, you know, very young, um, ends up in the Fleet Prison for debt. Now, that is, a lot of people ended up in the Fleet Prison for debt. You know, it was that kind of period, but... But nonetheless, it was still, you know, it was still had, you know, obviously had a, a massive sort of social um, sort of um, negativity around it, of course, even though there were lots of people who did become bankrupt um, because that was the nature of the period. There was very little safety nets, very few safety nets to actually support anybody um, who did come a cropper through some sort of a commercial enterprise and so on. Anyway, his father does end up in the fleet, and unsurprisingly, the fleet does figure in, for example, Rake's progress. So Hogarth had personal experience of that particular prison. Um, and But Hogarth doesn't blame his father, and I don't think his father should be blamed in a way. Um, he, he blames publishers, the ones who didn't support his father, who was an author, 
a publisher, you know, very enterprising man, um, living on his his knowledge, his his learning and his wit um, in a very difficult, um, but you know, but also a, an environment that um, you, you could you could do great things with. You know, there was lots of sort of enterprise going on. Nonetheless, there were no safety nets, so there was a difficulty there. And so I think he he always had, he had a lifelong distrust and disliking for publishers, uh, those who not only publish books, but also engravings too. And when he, when his father ends up in prison and then the family make, you know, continue in a very difficult um, social and, and economic environment, Hogarth is actually pulled out of school. So he misses out on that continuing more formal education, not the type of education we have now, but he would have had proper schooling and he's removed from the school um, and ends up being apprenticed uh, to a silver engraver. So not the thing that Hogarth wanted to do, which was be a, you know, apprenticed to an artist. It was very much a sort of, uh, you know, a, a much more lower down the hierarchy, you know, to be engraving silver pots and silver, you know, jugs and stuff like that. It was not quite what he wanted. And I think the other thing about being an artist in this period, it's not just about skill, about sort of the skill of mixing paints or being able to paint. It's also the intellect that sits behind that too. And that's why things like history painting is so elevated because it requires knowledge and an intellectual approach to art. Hence, you know, he was so proud and quite rightly too of his paintings at Bartholomew's Hospital because it required not only, you know, skill in creating paintings that enormous, um, and that complex with the characters and the narratives and so on. Um, but it required an intellect, a knowledge, a deep knowledge of the Bible, say, or, um, you know, Latin and Greek texts, ancient Latin and Greek and so on. Um, you know, the famous, you know, the Homer, uh, the great epics of Homer, but also John Milton, you know, real, you know, steeped in literature, theatre, as well as art, European art as well you know that that's what he aspired to that's the, that's the combination and of course ending up as a silver engraver was the complete <laughs> seemed to be the complete antithesis to that ambition of wanting to be you know, a great artist mm. in that traditional sense the european sense is it fair to say though that his reputation is more for railing against that kind of uh european traditional style he, he's not known for his em- embrace of these these uh more foreign, I'm not sure that's the right word, but non-British styles. Well, I think, you know, I think artists in this period, in, and Hogarth is certainly one of them, and bearing in mind his father was a Latin and Greek teacher, so he was a scholar in his own right of that tradition, of that European tradition. Um, Hogarth would have seen himself as a European artist in that sense, because they had, you know, you've got the shared common ancestry, both in literature and, um, but also in this concept of what great art is, it's very much embedded in the British school and in, in, in Britain at this time. And Hogarth doesn't argue against that as such. He, again, it's this idea of the level playing field. Not only has he been yanked out of his education, which would give him status and gentlemanly status through this education and through the learning and knowledge that you'd acquire and become easy with, which is you know, crucial to mixing with the, the middle classes and the gentry and the aristocracy and so on. He's yanked out of that and, 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 therefore, and then becomes a sort of artisan, which is not what he wants to be, um, even though it's completely useful to him in later life. You know, in, in fact, very soon, once he sort of emerges from his apprenticeship, he immediately starts you know, designing things himself, but also doing piecemeal work, engraving bits and bobs. But he then starts uh, attending academies where he can learn to draw from the nude form and so on. So, you know, this is all traditional training from a, from a European artist's point of view. And, you know, so I don't think he's anti that. He's about, he's anti the, the level playing field, which means actually about contemporary art and how contemporary artists from Italy and France are privileged over the native British school, as it were. So that's, you know, that's fair enough in a highly competitive commercial art market for contemporary art. You know, the last thing you need when it's difficult enough <laughs> getting work, um, is to have a whole load of uh, interlopers coming in and um, and those who are commissioning the art and what little opportunities there are to be commissioned to do art, great art in particular, you know, the great history paintings and so on. If this is, you know, it, it naturally privileged, highly trained individuals from France and Italy by those, the very people who are commissioning, you're, you're immediately on the back foot. And that's what he's railing against. 
you can tell he loves European art and he's steeped in it. You know, Rembrandt, Rubens, Van Dyck, uh, and even, you know, contemporary artists uh, from France who you'd think his, his, everyone thinks he's francophobic and like, yeah, but he had friends who were, were French. He also very much admired contemporary French art, you know, Watteau, uh, you know, and so on. He, he utilises it. He playfully sort of um, introduces it into his art, either directly or indirectly, and it shows a great empathy and a kind of joy in luxuriating in the type of brushwork, for example, that a French contemporary artist would, would naturally have and the use of colour and so on. No, he's very steeped in the European tradition and very much admires, loves it, talks about it in, in the analysis of beauty, his, his great work of art theory, you know, littered with references to European artists, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, all the greats, very much an admirer of it. He just, coupled with his sort of irritation, which then bubbles up into, you know, open anger against contemporary um, aristocrats and so on, privileging, as I say, and, and commissioning and buying contemporary art from outside and then then also writing about British art as being sub sub um, you know kind of the standard substandard to the European and French even if visually using your own eyes you can see that they're as good as each other it's just this prejudice that he finds so irritating there's also a prejudice towards old art as well so the prejudice goes back through the centuries you know so you so poor british artists are desperately trying to establish both as, a kind of, as individuals but also as a kind of school as it were of art that can vie with the best and the greatest of the european tradition are constantly hampered and hindered by the very people who are going to buy this art i mean almost inevitably um, so he's so his his anger. I mean, sorry, that was a bit of a sort of that's okay, you know, fuzzy sort of a thing. But that anger, you can see where the dimensions of it comes from. You've got a background where he had every hope of being a scholar as a scholar's son, being trained as a scholar, which means he has all the wherewithal, the knowledge, the easiness with classical training. You know, all the stories he'd know all about. It wouldn't have to self learn. It would all be you know given to him. That snatched away. His father ends up in the fleet, you know, all that kind of the, the, the sort of terrors of all that. Um, whilst at the same time in his chosen profession, he's also, you know, as a British artist, he's seen as substandards, you know, not as good as elsewhere, constantly competing against them and, and, and losing as other British artists did. So there's, a, there's an environment there for genuine anger, mm. I think. And if you're this sort of, you know, he's, he's you know, compact figure physique you know you can see that from his portrait self-portraits he and then he's described as short you know he's, he's quite you know he's compact though this little bruiser of a figure you know with his scar above one eye and his sort of which he always shows off by jauntily putting his his hat back his tricorn hat back so you could see the scar it's almost like a warning <laughs> as he sort of comes to you know this 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 feisty little figure comes towards you you know it's this you can see where the character develops but the flip side to this, you know, the sort of cliche of Hogarth is this aggressive sort of, you know, anti-angry individual is the, the gentleness and the care and the fellow feeling and the love of mankind. You know, it's definitely there. It might be unfashionable to say it or sort of controversial to say it in relation to Hogarth, but there is because you, you can tell from not only his art, if you analyse the art, you can see the love there. You can see the joy and the sort of all the things you don't necessarily think of as well as you know the vitriol, the <laughs> the stuff that perhaps he's 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 better known for. So you know, going back to the book, it's sort of you know I'm just keen. You can hear I'm I'm, I'm a great champion of him. And I, when you're writing a biography, you've got to keep reining yourself in from championing him at the same time and constantly excusing bad behaviour or sort of you know. <laughs> um, but you know, but he's I think he's such a joy. Um, even when you're feeling despair at some of the things that he does and says and writes and so on. And sometimes his images are very, you know, particularly for the 21st century viewer, really you know, quite sort of strident stuff and sometimes quite offensive stuff. But we are talking somebody from, you know, 300 years ago, was living 300 years ago. He is a man of his time. But, uh, but I think a lot of what he does is beyond the time that he lived. It's about common humanity and love and joy and all those things that connect us to to our ancestors and Hogarth got it by spades. 
Okay. Well, if we can um, kind of investigate that a little more then, and uh, in terms of you've already mentioned his constant awareness and interest in the people around him and how he portrays that sense of humanity that is obviously used, there's joy there. So can we talk a little more about where he finds all of these details that have kind of intrigued and, and entertained for so many years? Well, I think he um, uh, he initially says in later life when he writes these sort of very sort of sort of mad little notes about his, which are connected to an autobiography that he clearly intended to put at the front of a uh, a publication of all his prints. He was intending to write a little autobiography. He had these little notes, and he sort of he refers back to the period when he obviously had been pulled out of school was now apprenticed to uh, an engraver and so on. He says that, you know, that meant that he he was quite late becoming an apprentice um, because he wasn't intended for that. He was supposed to be in school learning that, getting that gentleman's education. Um, so he's quite late to the game. And he also feels that engraving is going to be just, is just going to pull him back. He's not going to get the training that he needs for a career in fine art, as in painting and so on. So... Um, he not only signs up to these academies, these drawing academies, which were informal, you know, artist-led academies, which you paid a, a fee and then you turned up in the evening and you drew after life models and so on. So he starts to get that practical knowledge of, of the basics of art, of fine art. Um, but he also, just to catch up, because he feels he's got time, you know, he's lost time, he's got to kind of catch up with his contemporaries, his peer group, um, he starts what he said is sort of the quickest way as he describes it he's when he's sitting in a pub he starts observing people in the pub and he starts if he's got his little sketchbook with him which he seems to have carried everywhere a sketchbook and pencil um he starts drawing these people and he says uh, you know because you never know you just squirrel it away as a kind of uh you know it's a, a sort of um part of the, the building the building blocks of a create, you know, of a, a design for whether it's a painting or an engraving. These are all, you know, people. These characters are sort of squirreled away, and also the sort of the narrative in which, you know, the scene that plays out of him, particularly in a pub, you can imagine. So he's got various little anecdotes where, you know, somebody has starts a fight, starts in a pub that he happens to be sitting in, and somebody smashes a pint pot over his head, and and he sits there sketching the whole scenario, not only the characters but also the narrative itself. And you can see these figures popping up in his art right the way through his life. He must have had an amazing um, catalogue of, um, of of sketches, you know, these little notes that he's made during the course of his life. Few of them exist now, tragically, but um, he must have had them somewhere in his, you know, to, to sort of. You know, go back to. So he's he's learning on the job. He's not just sitting in a pub, you know, after a drawing lesson. He goes into the pub and then he start carries on drawing. So he's he's working and being entertained and enjoying himself at the same time. So he can combine everything that life can afford. He can combine it all together whilst learning to be an artist, an observer of human life in all its gaiety and <laughs> variety at the same time. And then he also interestingly develops um um, a, a means of creating um, hieroglyphs, as he calls them, um, which is a way of memorising a, a figure, but reducing it right down to composite, its basic parts, almost like just sheer lines. You know, so it could be the shape of a W or something like that, and it would remind him of this particular person or this particular costume and so on. So he says later in life he developed this system, very personal, idiosyncratic system, which allowed him to memorise things. It trained him to memorise what he's looking at, as well as, at the same time, if he has a pen and paper with him, then he might draw it. Um, there's also anecdotes about him drawing quickly onto his thumbnail, for example. Um, you know, whatever's to hand. You know, and, of course, you know, he just he just put down a little this one of these little hieroglyphs, or it might be a little sketch or something, and it would be something he can he can um, sort of adapt later, later in, in whichever composition he's dealing with. So he's, he's, it's absolutely crucial to Hogarth's, you know, very modus operandi is that he is an observer. He's an observer who then translates these characters and scenarios into brilliant storytelling via his, his engravings, his paintings and so on. And even his portraits, and which is sort of you know, standard for the time, have a narrative quality too, whether it's the introduction of something like a, a little uh, you know, type of clothing the person's wearing or the type of wig they've got or the little accoutrements that can sort of surround them, a globe or this or that, adds a biographical and sort of an added element to what could be a very simple 
image of someone, you know, just simply a reflection of what they look like. You've got to try and burrow into the mind of the person and the biography and life of the person. And a good portrait does all those things. It's much more than simply replicating a human being so you could recognise it as being X, you know. It's got to be much more than that. It's got about character and biography and so on. So those wonderful ability to observe human life and just and then to imitate it, which he says he's also good at, he's good at imitating, and that'll be imitation on all every permutation of the word imitation. Um, so presumably he was a good mimic as well, so he could mimic people um, as we would deem mimicry, um, but also mimic them through his drawings and, and his engravings and so on. So all this is sort of, you know, this, you know, he, he says he develops this system so he can sort of just speed up the process of becoming, you know, the great artist that he hopes he will be. Okay, and this this prodigious talent, this system, does result in uh, some of the work you've already mentioned. These progresses, these series, the series, um, and the more famous work people will already be familiar with. But um, when was his kind of breakthrough? When did he start start seeing commercial success? How did that happen? Well, he uh, so yes, so he comes out of his apprenticeship in seventeen twenty around then and then immediately establishes himself as an independent artist and well engraver really um he starts uh, producing his own engravings um but then they're pirated quite quickly you know so he's so he's clearly somebody that people are watching because and his engravings are clearly popular you know they're, they're the look of them and these are satires and stuff like that but um but actually, as he's trying to get a foothold, he is quite poor. And they, he's described in later, he describes himself as being poor in this period when he's first um, left home. His father's died by this point. His mother is um, sort of running various haberdashery shops in West Smithfield, where, where Hogarth was born. Um, but he's a young man having to make his own way. There's no family money. So he's a self-made man. There's, you know, there's no two ways about it. And he's very proud of that. But in his early life, he's, he's, you know, he is quite poor. And so he ends up being, again, sort of slightly the victim of, um, of the engraving system in this period, which was absolutely dominated by a few people. Very few people were actually in charge of publications, but also engravings, as in the popular engravings that we that we know. And so Hogarth had to was was often undercut by these people. They would only offer him a little bit of money for something that he had spent quite a bit of time on, because simply because they dominated the market and they could do it. So um, I think that made Hogarth resolve to be in charge of his own as much as he can be in charge of his own art and therefore his own life and in particular his own income. So um, the first great, you know, sort of thing that uh, that sort of pulls together everything that we've been talking about so far is, of course, Harlot's Progress, which is um, published in the spring of 1732, is a rollicking success. I mean, no two ways about it. Um, he makes a lot of money and, of course, immediately springs on, you know, he's, he's sort of gradually gaining reputation, but this absolutely launches him. It's original. I mean, it really is original because it's a sequence of six images pro showing the progress of a young, naive girl who arrives from York in London, uh, has no idea of the ways of the metropolis, which, of course, is <laughs> pretty hideous in this particular context, <laughs> almost immediately stumbles into um, a, a madam, a brothel madam, and almost inevitably, it's not funny actually, and almost inevitably um, is, is sort of um, initiated into the ways of the brothel. Um, and then you chart, he charts her progress um, from the initial moment where she, two paths at least are open to her. I don't talk to this woman or, you know, go off and do something else. And then she, but of course, she, inevitably and sadly, she, she because she's simply not too naive to realise what the context is that she's now in, um, declines until finally she um, she dies from venereal disease uh, by the fifth image and then in the sixth image all her fellow prostitutes have turned up to her wake and they're all you know sort of uh, you know uh, punting they're getting punters <clears throat> even as they're looking you know sitting around her coffin they're all you know sort of vying for punters who've also turned up including a vicar um, and so this is what I mean about the comedy you can't help but smile. But there is something very serious going on here. Apart from anything else, he's saying to parents, you know, in the sequence, you know, what are you doing letting your daughters, who have no knowledge of anything, loose in a place like London where 
you know people like the the, uh, the madam, the, uh, the 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 board, you know, who, who's from the um, um, you know, the, the harlot who introduces her into the ways of the of the brothel. Um, you know, she has no idea that she's being reeled in by these conniving individuals. Um, and uh, so, what are you doing, letting your young girls? Be you know you know to be victims of this, but once she's become the victim, then you you do wonder about this this sort of anti heroine in a way. You you then wonder you know at what point could she have got herself off this path? Is it inevitable this progress to the end? So it is that combination of of the, you know the, the serious comedy. It is absolutely that. It might be there might be humour in it, and you might smile and laugh as I've just done. But actually. This is not a nice story at all. It's it's a very unpleasant story, and it's not an unusual story. It might not be. It's certainly not unique, um, and it's not typical as such. But there's there were enough women who were who would recognise this story um, as their own or close an approximation to their own experience. So it's the heart, you know, because of what he's done there, and he did the whole thing himself. So he invented it, although he uses, uh, you know, contemporary stories from the newspapers, a bit like Thomas Hardy in that way. He sort of picks up stories from contemporary newspapers, you know, famous, uh, a famous prostitute called Hackabout, you know, and so on. And she, he sort of picks up these, these individuals, but he invents, essentially invents the story, though. Um, he designs it. He then engraves it and then he distributes it as well. So he's in charge of everything. So it was great that his first great success was something he was actually in control of because guess what? All the money, apart from paying the printers and stuff, but all the money came back to him. So he um, you know, benefited from his own creativity directly. Um, so, so yes, the harlot's progress is, is the key. And, uh, of course, it stimulates others. It stimulates... You know, he, cashes in on this huge success of the harlot by producing uh, a male you know sort of protagonist um the rake um tom rakewell so that happens almost within you know a year or so of the huge success of harlot he goes uh, and decides to do a, a sort of parallel life for a man and this is this is rake's progress unfortunately for hogarth Obviously, the Harlot's progress is a runaway success. I mean, the designs are on fans. They're in. You know, there's people are just jumping on the bandwagon, left, right, and centre, including guess what? The pirates of engraving. So, sort of cheaper versions of his expensive prints, because these are prints not everyone could own by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, yeah, they're expensively produced. They are. You know, they. You know, not everyone will have them, but. He's undercut. So despite the success of it, he's undercut by these uh, sort of pirates and stuff. And um, and this is the moment where Hogarth says, this isn't going to happen again. You know, Because, of course, not only is the alarm bell ringing in regard to his own career and what's happened to him with the individual engravings that he'd produced in the 1720s, he's got the, the, the vision of his own father, who, of course, was, was sort of, you know, had been... Um, brought to his knees by publishers and and so on. So he's uh, so this is very personal, and so in order to prevent the rake's progress being pirated in the same way as the harlot, um, or harlot's progress, um, he this is when he um, starts uh, creating and uh, and introducing the the idea of a copyright law, which is passed in in 1735. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This sequence of engravings was specifically created to target a a very obvious audience, which is young men. These young men who have a bit of money in their pocket because they're apprentices, who hit the streets, get drunk, go to hangings, use prostitutes, all those things his father talks about that you shouldn't do, which Hogarth has introduced into his, his artwork, Rake's Progress, Harlot's Progress, and so on. You know, he's targeting these individuals very particularly. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. And I wanted to ask about this, um, these critiques, the satire, obviously, I think many readers will know has fairly strong, well, very strong moral dimension. And you write, I think, about an earlier work, um, an instance where moral outrage and self-interest in this instance aligned perfectly. And I wonder how much of his work with these moral motifs is driven by personal ethics or whether he's almost also being a little bit opportunistic in um, harnessing moral outrage against gin or depravity that kind of thing uh, I think it's both it's, I think you, are you already going to anticipate what I'm saying yeah it's uh it's it's definitely both I mean there is enlightened self-interest in a lot of what Hogarth does um I mean he's his upbringing again going back to Richard Hogarth his father you know he's um some of the publications that we know that still exist that his father produced are very strongly moral. Even if they're teaching children Latin and Greek, um, they're still a massive, you know, real strong moral core. They're like proverbs, you know. And I think that's where Hogarth learns that that moral core comes from his father. Other people too, but I think the, the father is very crucial to this. Um, and then combined with that idea of entertainment, which he would have found, you know, in, in the, you know, the, St. Bartholomew Fair, for example, where they had the booths with all the entertainers doing these sort of, you know, sort of almost like carnivalesque <laughs> um, entertainment, you know, and comedy, but also with a strong moral element to it. There's a big tradition of this, isn't there? This this combination of the serious comedy, you know, it's it's literary, it's theatrical, it's also artistic and so on. So he's he's observing all this, but I think that the father is a very strong um, um, prototype for Hogarth. Um, and I think combined with that tragedy of what happened to him, where his his career, his father's career, just goes completely south. Um, so I think that's that's the, that's the core, that's the hub of it. You know, that's the. Comp- but you know, in this day and age, when when he was when he's working, um, you need to make money. You know, you've got to make money. You've got to you know keep body and soul together. He had when his father dies, he's got a mother and two sisters who are more than capable of looking after themselves. But you know, as the head of the household, he's got that uh, pressure to to also sort of maintain his his two sisters and his mother um and in, in 1729 he marries um to james thornhill's daughter so she's she's the daughter of an artist so she knows the ways of the artist and the pressures of running a commercial business a contemporary art business and so on um so he then has a wife um and uh, and so he's you know the, the pressure's constantly there to use his wits constantly on his feet constantly thinking um, but it is everything he tries to do has this is a duality, at least a duality about it. It makes money. Hopefully, you know, he'll get the money in. But he's he's um, he's uh, chiming with everything that makes great art or, you know, really sort of innovating in art and so on. He's, it's that combination. He's constantly wanting to do both. So it's quite rare for Hogarth to knock something out quick, you know, in order to generate money. Um, as with you know, with uh, Gin Lane and so on, there's there's always something, even though it's got a moral core to it. You know, it, it 
hopefully it'll make money at the same time. So there is that constant, I don't think it's a conflict, I think it's, a, it's just a constant throughout his career in life and not unusual, you know, in a period, as I say, with very little financial or support for anyone who, who you know, falls down. Um, yes, it seems quite canny. Um, and if we stay on this uh, kind of moral um, question, you, you've written for BBC History magazine recently about how religion and faith shaped his life and art. Um, could we pick up a little bit on, on, on that, which might, which might well be a lesser known aspect of, of Hogarth? Well, I mean, you know, uh, he, he had mates who were Anglican vicars. <laughs> um, so I don't think he was completely anti the Church of England. And I think it's, uh, you know, although, you know, there's the famous anecdote where he's supposed to have, he have peed in, the, uh, in the, the porch of a church. In actual fact, he did a lot worse and it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't in the porch, it was up a door. But that's part <laughs> of the peregrination, which I go into as the interlude. So you've got the chapters, uh, the, the way that the book is structured, you have these little interludes, which is the 1732 journey down the Thames which we'll talk about in a minute but that was that journey was undertaken just after the Harlot's Progress the Harlot's Progress came out so um so that's the that's the period in which that little journey occurs so so he's sort of because of this one sort of iconoclastic you know just damn rude <laughs> little event uh from 1732 seems to have sort of tarred him a little bit as an iconoclast and sort of anti-organized religion at the very least and I think there's a bit of that in him because I think anybody in charge is worth a pop as Hogarth <laughs> seems to think um, but I think there is again. There's going back to this moral core. You know, it's 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 a moral core based on a kind of Christian tradition. Not saying that Christianity is the only place where great morals can be found, but this is the period we're talking about. This late 17th, early 18th century is certainly the case from from Hogarth's point of view. So there's he he knows he he feels he knows the right and wrong of it, and then he, and then it's indicated through the way he deals with people, and they're his puppets, they're his characters, his actors that he plays out on the stage that he creates. You know, this is all him. Um, so I think you can you can take something about the moral and the religious or however you want, spiritual or whatever, how you want to describe it. You can extract that from his his works, even if you don't, he doesn't tell you through a letter or through a comment. He doesn't actually say it, but, um, but I think you can pick up on these things. He's got friends, obviously, who are um, in the established church, in the Church of England. You've got the, uh, Richard Hogarth. James Thornhill works a lot for the Church, Church of England. Obviously, he painted the interior of the dome of, um, of St Paul's Cathedral. So, that, you know, there's a connection through the loftiness of the sort of, the, the sort of uplifting quality of art through these public spaces that are spiritual and Christian and so on. So he's got that as a, an exemplar as well. And James Thornhill is really crucial to Hogarth's self-image of what a great artist is, and he's very much his... Uh, totemic figure in in Hogarth's career and I just I've just um, picked out because I um, knew that the the religious question comes up I mean in Industry and Idleness the 1747 sequence of 12 engravings which has two apprentices starting off at exactly the same place and then almost immediately they separate off into completely different trajectories and one ends up as the Lord Mayor of London in the 12th final plate, and the other one ends up on a journey to Tyburn and is hanged for various crimes he's committed during the course of, of the journey. And the 11th plate, which shows Tom Idle, who is inevitably going to, you know, he's going to be, um, end up on the wrong side of the law and everything else, and, and God, as it turns out, the attached to this engraving. So Hogarth sets out the scene at Tyburn with all the, the, the paraphernalia, um, that goes on during execution day. Um, and there's poor old Tom in his cart being led off to the, the triple tree, the sort of hanging tree. And beneath is a, is a quote from Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 27 to 8. And I'll read it out because it's pretty thunderous. And there's an element of thunder to Hogarth's moralising. But this is, this is the attached quote. When fear cometh as desolation and their destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress cometh upon them, then they shall call upon God, but he will not answer. Now, that's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty grim. Mm -hmm. It's pretty sort of, you know, I mean, that's pretty thundering as well, isn't it, at the same time? So, so that's, you know, you might be able to raise a smirk or a smile from some of the little incidents that he puts into the engraving. 
But then what sits, what this whole thing sits on is this quote from Proverbs, which is thunderously bleak. Um, and it really is a case that, uh, dear Tom Idle, you know, you should have listened <laughs> way back at the beginning of this journey because everyone is can conspire against you. Um, if you've chosen the wrong course, everyone will conspire against you. The law doesn't like you much either. And guess what? You end up at, at Tyburn. And then even God isn't listening. Even God isn't, by this point, isn't mm. isn't observing your your demise. So, so you know, there's a, you know, it's that's pretty strong, isn't it? It's pretty raw. And, of course, this sequence of engravings was specifically created um, to target you know, a, a very obvious audience, which is young men. Mm -hmm. These young men who have a bit of money in their pocket because they're apprentices, who hit the streets, get drunk, go to hangings, use prostitutes, all those things his father talks about that you shouldn't do, which Hogarth has introduced into his his artwork, um, Rake's Progress, Harlot's Progress, and so on. You know, he's targeting these individuals very particularly, and he produced these engravings relatively cheaply because of that target audience. Mm -hmm. You know, he wanted them hanging on the walls of the, the where the looms are, where these apprentices are learning their trade in the silk silk looms and, and sheds of the the weavers in Spitalfields and stuff. He wants he wants them up there and he wants these people to sit. And if it's just about making money, why be so thundering? <laughs> why be so extreme? And even though even in this sequence, although it sounds like it's going to be pretty stark, you know, the, as he says, you know, it's about good and evil you know, industry and idleness and, you know, what's good about one, demonstrably good about one, and what's pitiful and awful about the other. In other words, it's very obvious which path he's saying is the best path. But even within that slightly, you know, really thunderous, um, very sort of obvious good and bad, evil and, and good and all this sort of thing, uh, between the two paths, there's subtleties introduced. So, you know, he's got a few words of warning for, you know, the, uh, the good child who is the, the good apprentice, the industrious apprentice. There's a few sort of comments towards him saying, you know, be careful what you do with that money. Be careful what you do with all that power and influence that you've got. Do it for good. Don't do it for bad. Don't ignore this, that and the other. Nonetheless, it is a pretty strident um, uh, sort of a development of his idea of the different paths that people can take. And there it is, writ large, vice and virtue, good and bad. Right. And I think an important thing to probably mention here as well is that he did put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he did support um, the, the, the idea that you can help someone to choose a better path financially as well. Yes. I mean, the um, for example, the, the paintings he does at Bartholomew's Hospital, which, of course, had a very personal angle for him because he was born in the shade of that hospital and he was desperate to do the uh, to, to to paint these the staircase. And those two paintings are, you know, so he offers them free of charge as well. So he becomes a governor of the hospital. So he's working as a volunteer, super volunteer for the hospital, fundraising and all that kind of thing. But he also provides these magnificent, and they're enormous canvases on this magnificent staircase, free of charge as well. So it's a donation in kind, and he becomes a super volunteer of the organisation too. And these two canvases are, um, you know, You've got the Good Samaritan, which is about fe practical help, fellow feeling. Um, but you've also got this idea that, you know, that the, 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 the quote from the Good Samaritan is go and do the same. You know, it's, love thy neighbour, go and do the same. So he's telling these grandees who are turning up to the hospital with all their money and their wealth that, that they should go and do the same. That's the message. So not only is he presenting them with magnificent artworks, which hopefully they're going to commission more of, from him and he'll make some money out of it. <laughs> this is this combination, constant combination with Hogarth. And it's, you know, quite right too. Um, he's also saying, go and do the same fellow feeding. You know, that you've got to donate to the hospital, you know, do what you can. You know, this is about loving mankind. It's about your fellow uh, citizen, your fellow human being. And it's about that kindness and who is my neighbour? Anyone in need is my neighbour and that kind of thing. So the very fact that the, the paintings, the Pool of Bethesda is about a, a lame man walking. So it's Christ curing the lame man. Um, so it's obvious. They're obvious uh, stories from the New Testament for a hospital, practical help and so on. But there's this spiritual element that comes in too. And there's a slight pointy finger, <laughs> Hogarth, persuading you. But there's an element of the pointing, you know, he's sort of pointing at you and saying, you know, don't just look at these paintings and comment on them as artworks. You know, go off and do exactly what what 
Christ did, you know, the, the fellow feeling and all that kind of thing. So, so he does. He's there is there is a you know there's a a sort of um, there's an element of the parable. He uses parables because obviously the Good Samaritan is one. But there is an element of the parabolic about his his art, particularly his series paintings and engravings. Um, and he there's a genuine desire to do good. But obviously he needs to live. <laughs> so there is, and he wants to be a great artist. So there's lots of things going on here, and I think that that combination, I think, is, makes him a great artist. You know, he's he's not just a practitioner; he's just just a a good technical artist. There's so much thought and energy, and new ideas. Um, and with the Pool of Bethesda in particular, he combines different sorts of art in the same painting. So you've got this elevated art, this dignified, elevated art, you know, the stretches all the way back, you know, Michelangelo and all that sort of thing. And Sir James Thornhill as this sort of history painter of the interiors of great, you know, um, spaces, of architectural spaces. And in amongst all the people crowded around Jesus, this wonderfully dignified, I think based on Charles I, he has a kind of Charles I pointy beard and quite king of kings thing going on there. He's got this very elegant figure who is Jesus, Jesus Christ, and then surrounded by people who have evident medical problems. Um, he's not dressing it up at all. He's not dignifying him in that way. They're dignified in their agony and their pain. Um, so once again, these people, you can imagine going up the stairs, they're not, nothing's going to be sugar-coated for them. You know, you've got the presence of Jesus himself, you know, who's telling the story or in the narrative is his one of his stories associated with him but surrounding him are these people with you could you could stumble into the go into the courtyard beyond that staircase and bump into somebody who looks exactly like somebody who's in that in that painting so it's that wonderful combination of high and low but all to a great purpose on a basic level a magnificent staircase you know it's a wonderfully impressive staircase a wonderful piece of art and technical ability etc but also with that one again this 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 sort of fundamental, um, you know, sort of reaching out to and to pluck your heartstrings at the same time to get you to, to to donate, but also to have some empathy with somebody who is less fortunate than you. Right, and, and you can see more um, of your comments on the Pool of Bethesda and, and other work in your BBC History magazine article, which I do hope uh, some listeners will check out. And You've already mentioned the Peregrine Nation, so I guess I, I'd like to ask about that next. Um, you, you structure your book, there's these interludes um, that explore this this event um, in 1732, if I can call it an event, I suppose. Um, what do these interludes allow you to explore about Hogarth and his world? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very unusual moment, I think, for you know anyone who deals with historic characters as opposed to people who are used to writing lots of journals and stuff like that. A lot of people simply burnt their letters and so on. So you you really know what you're doing, what they're doing minute by minute or day by day or year by year even. Um, it's difficult to pin down. And with Hogarth, there is really relatively little in his own hand. Um, but the peregrination, which is sort of a five-day journey to and from the Isle of Sheppey, so from Covent Garden to Sheppey and then back again. Um, and there's this memorial manuscript written by one of the uh, Ebenezer Forrest, wonderful name, um, who's one of the friends of Hogarth who's with him on this trip. He writes this this manuscript in, in honour of their hilarious journey uh, to and from the Isle of Sheppey. And then the other, the artists, there's three artists there. It's um, John Thornhill, who's Sir James Thornhill's son, um, Samuel Scott, who's uh, about the same age. They're all about the same age as each other, uh, all artists. And then you've got, uh, you know, dear old Ebenezer, who's a, a lawyer, um, and then, of course, William Tothall, who is a merchant seaman or an ex-merchant seaman, but now he's a draper. And the five of them have been clearly sitting in the pub in uh, in Covent Garden and thought it's such a lovely night. You know, it's a late May day uh, in 1732. So he's, the of progress is out. You know, everything's kicking off and he's wonderful. And it's a, presumably it was a nice day, a nice evening, and they were having a great time. And then they thought, let's let's you know, let's just take five days out and just go to Sheppey and, and back again. So off they go. <laughs> you know, they obviously uh, you know pick up a bit of money, a bit of cash, um, a spare shirt. That's all they've got, which they put in their pockets. And then off they go. They hit the streets. This is you know early hours of Saturday morning. They they go off to the River Thames, get on a little um, a, a boat, and go off towards the uh, the estuary of um, <laughs> of uh, of the Thames. 
And, uh, you know, they pass wonderful places en route. So the story itself is just a moment to get five days you know, up close and personal with Hogarth and his friends, who aren't very famous people. They're not like Henry Fielding or anything like that, but they are fr the friends that Hogarth had when he really starts to become well-known and famous. So it's interesting in that way. And you're there day by day, minute by minute, you're actually with him doing completely different things to what he would normally do in an environment that's completely different. So unusually for Hogarth, where you do tend to focus on London because he's a charter of London, really, and its immediate environs, yeah, unusually you get to travel with him all the way down to the where the Thames meets the sea, you know, and back again, and using different craft to get to and from. They walk through the Hoo Peninsula, the Isle of Grain, they visit Rochester and Chatham Dockyard and all that kind of thing. So on the one hand, on one level, it's a, just a wonderful way of spending some time with him and his friends. Um, but also I decided to use the, the five-day peregrination to split it up into these little interludes so that it becomes a sort of palate refresher in between the heft of the chapters, you know, which covers things that we've just been talking about, whilst at the same time sort of underlying, you know, sort of, uh, sort of uh, supporting some of the themes that come out in the subsequent chapters. So you have one interlude that might talk about marriage because it just happens to come up, the idea of um, they meet a, um, a very attractive um, landlady in one of the pubs that they go into. They go into lots of pubs, by the way, and they visit lots of graveyards. And um, But they go into this pub and they, they they call her, she's in her charming country, they call it. You know, she's, they're obviously very beguiled by this lady. And they discover, in fact, she had five had had five husbands, <laughs> so or four husbands, four or five husbands. So that is a nice little detail. And then you can introduce things about marriage ceremonies and weddings and all that kind of thing. You can introduce that into that little interlude. But then I segue straight from that into Marriage a la mode, the chapter that focuses on Marriage a la mode and Hogarth's marriage himself and whether it was a happy marriage. I wonder if we can perhaps uh, begin to wrap up by saying a little about Hogarth's end and perhaps how we can characterise or contextualise that rise and that success and his ability to characterise this entire age that takes his name really more than 250 years after his end. Yeah, I th well, I think that, you know, it's just on one level, he's he's so prolific. I mean, he's literally producing, there's, there's an image for everything you ever want to do on the first half of the 18th century. There's a hope and beyond actually, because people use it anachronistically um, for things that happened in the 19th century. But he's sort of, you know, there's something for everyone in, in Hogarth's life and career, whether it is the paintings um, or more famously the engravings. So he he taps into every aspect of uh, of early Georgian life, early to mid-Georgian life. So it's all there. And I think he's, his, his images are so striking and so you know, punchy. And because I think partly because visually they're stunning and sort of you know, punchy, but there is that moral core. There is that laughter and tears quality about it. And you, even as you're laughing, you do pull up straight. You know, he's, he's not just wanting to make you laugh. He's, he's dragging you back into the 18th century in a way. And he's showing you uh, something that's very particular to the period, but also something that's very universal at the same time. So as I say... You know, as way back in the beginning of this, we, you know, we talk about the. You know, he's, he's talking about his age, and he is a man of his age. But what makes these images greater than that, in my opinion, is the fact that it taps into the universal, into the themes, the emotions, the ideas that makes us human. And I think, in many ways, Hogarth is himself. He's a very human human being. You know, he is he's in the streets, but he's also, you know, in the churches. He's, you know, he reflects everything. And I think that's very much a reflection of his character, too. He is everywhere. Um, and that's and I think he so it's on the one level, it's the sheer wealth of what of the images, the graphic images that he the graphics that he provides us for the period. But I think it is that universality at the same time. And he's, um, as I say, you know, as we've talked about, you know, he's more known as being an engraver. And, you know, with these, this particular series and things like, the, you know, the um, four stages of cruelty and all that kind of thing. So tapping into what we would see as low life. Um, but he is increasingly known as, an, as a painter, too. And these, this is things that, that people in the 19th century, like J.M.W. Turner, recognised um, Sir David Wilkie, adored Marigella Mode. Not the engravings, the paintings. So he was a great painter. Um, you know, you've got people like uh, James McNeil Whistler, 
adored Hogarth. He said he's the greatest of English painters and so on. Not something you would expect to hear because we know him as an engraver. And, and contemporary artists, Yinka Shonabari, you know, Paul Arego, Lubaina Humid, you know, they've all, you know, they all engage and embrace Hogarth. They have relationships with Hogarth. There's, there's something about him. He's got an easiness about him. You know, he's not pompous. <laughs> I think he can be pompous, actually, but he's not, in the main, a pompous person. He's, he's engaging. He's like somebody you imagine you could chat to. You almost feel like you are when you're looking at his paintings. You're having a conversation with him. Um, you know, he's, uh, his experiences and stuff just ooze out of those, <laughs> the, uh, the images. So I think there's, there's a, there's a famil familiarity. There's a kind of, um, um, you know, there's a, an engaging element to him, which I think was part of his character, which I think absolutely, as I say, absolutely you know, exudes from everything from Thomas Coram, the portrait of Thomas Coram, founder of the Founding Hospital, right the way through to even Harlots and Rake's Progress. There's a humanity there, even as he's showing us the inhumanity um, of mankind. There's a, there is a humanity there. So I think that's what we find so engaging. Absolutely. Well, I've loved reading about him and indeed hearing about him today. And I, I do hope listeners will want to spend uh, more time with him now. Uh, thank you so much, Jackie, for your time and talking to us. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. That was Jacqueline Riding. Hogarth, Life in Progress is published this month by Profile Books. And you can read a piece by Jacqueline in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on the Black Death, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the history of cricket, among other things. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for a discussion of women's health through history. <laughs> <laughs>